You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. I am your co-host, Reza Aslin. Rain. Hey, Reza. And this is the part where you say I'm your, I'm the other co-host. Oh, Rain. yeah, sorry. I was in the middle of something. I, and I'm your uh, other uh, host, co-host, what are you Rain reading? Wilson. Are you reading in the middle of the and, podcast? Well, Listen, um, I knew we were going to be talking about science fiction today, so I brought out some, uh, just a dozen or so titles from my collection Ooh. of hundreds, literally hundreds of science fiction books um, that I collected as a gawky teenager in the 70s and 80s. Oh, these what books we were have your right only here? friends. These, these books were literally my only friends. <laughs> these books and my bassoon. And my chessboard were my only well, friends. Technically, your Here's, bassoon was your girlfriend. But keep going. Uh, what do you What oh, do you got there? What do you What do you have? Uh, ben Bova's uh, Privateers. What Ooh. else do we have? C.J. Sherry, Heavy Time. Some great. Some These great some uh, covers. Then we go like more into like the fifties and sixties stuff. Rendezvous with Rama. They're making a movie. Do you know Rendezvous with Rama? Have you read this one? Yeah, absolutely. I have not Classic. read it, but I know the book. Yes. Classic. Classic. Wow, that's that's um, a pretty good collection. You know, this is one of the many things that you and I have in common with each yeah. other. Uh, besides mm-hmm. the fact that we're both incredibly handsome and talented, Thank obviously. Thank you. Yes. Um, but we both kind of grew up with sci-fi. Like sci-fi it was the first kind of stories that I ever remember hearing. It's the first kind uh-huh. of stories that I ever remember writing. I had like this very clear memory of when I was in like, I don't know, fourth grade or whatever, writing a writing my first short story and it was like a sci-fi adventure, you know, mm-hmm, short mm-hmm. story. Um, like sci-fi is kind of how I figured out who I am and and like what my role in the world is. It informed me of who I was as well. I mean, it's my personality. It's my imagination. Um, I didn't know worlds like this were possible. My life was absolutely barren before science fiction, I think a combination of science fiction and 70s and 80s sitcoms mm-hmm. kind of uh, completely <laughs> made me who I am Holy and shit, as too, evidenced yeah. by my life. So um, I think that science fiction can change the world. Oh, yeah. And so we wanted to discuss this with a, a an incredibly uh, thoughtful, brilliant, insightful uh, science fiction uh, nerd, one of the biggest on the planet. Um, his name is Ryan Britt. He's got this book, Phasers on Stun. How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. He's been writing on science fiction and pop culture since 2009. He was uh, an entertainment editor at Fatherly. He's contributed to Sci-Fi Wire and Den of Geek and Vulture and Vice and CNN and True on and nerd. on and on. Like true, true certified nerd. nerd. And you know what we wanted to talk about? I mean, obviously he's written a, a lot about Star Trek. He's learned about it. But what we wanted to really talk about with him is this idea that maybe science fiction is the thing that saves us as a society, as a planet, as a civilization. Can science fiction save us? Ryan Britt, welcome to the show. 
Phasers on stun, how the making and remaking of Star Trek changed the world. Wait, do you, Ryan, do you know this story? Because, like, you know, obviously we've got, you know, two huge Star Trek fans. Rain, as you well know, and as we've discussed, you know, has is in the Star Trek canon. We've interviewed uh, Star Trek actors like Will Wheaton and Tig Notaro. And everyone tells this story, which I'm sure you've heard, about how... Actors, regardless of whether we're talking about Next Generation or Voyager or Discovery or or whatever, that when you give actors those phasers and you have them act, they unconsciously all go pew, 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 pew. (laughs) Like they have to be told repeatedly, stop saying pew. Stop saying that. We can see your lips. I've you know I've heard that's true of Star Wars too though because I I talked to uh, I talked to Hayden Christensen a couple weeks ago and he said he was saying you know oh yeah it's hard to not it's you know <laughs> to not make the noise you know because you know but yes yeah, so I he the, he and McGregor had said that a lot with it with um, the, I think so with the, all, oh, the, yeah. the lightsaber too yeah, like, that's right yeah exactly yeah how yeah, can exactly. you not make the <laughs> mouth noises so Ryan I t- I talked at the beginning of the show about my epic 70s science fiction collection here's here's another one paul anderson a circus of hells <laughs> that's great <laughs> um these are so good oh my god this one is expensive back in the day this was 11 dollars. 1970 first edition so many uh great science fiction i i i grew up i i, I nursed from the teat of science fiction as <laughs> i was watching all of those amazing star trek reruns through the 70s like i feel like it made me who I am. I feel like science fiction and fantasy, um, all of those stories made me the actor that I am, the human being that I am, gave me the mind that I have. And you are thick in this. You are you are in it. You are in it to win it. You are Mr. Science Fiction. So can you talk a little bit from your expertise and feel free to just be a, a colossal windbag at this point. <laughs> so I think, you know, it's impossible to separate America from American science fiction, especially over the last 100 years, 110 years, H.G. Wells aside, a couple of Brits, but mostly American. Why is it important? Take us through the history of science fiction, especially at how it interweaves with American culture and society and identity. Well, you're right that it is uniquely American, and it's not really until the 70s that you start to see a resurgence of uh British sci-fi writers. Um, I actually was just reading a a scholarly book that was written in the 70s that was a survey of science fiction up until that point. Um, And the author went out of his way in the introduction to say, I'm not talking about British science fiction because American science fiction is the birth of science fiction as we know it. And that's because it started in the pulp magazines in the 20s and 30s, right? And so that is where science fiction essentially comes from as we know it now. Um, and then what you had is you had, and Hugo Gernsback was the kind of founder of um, um, Astounding. Um, and then you had um, John Campbell take over Astounding. And John Campbell was this guy who decided that science fiction was going to be taken a little bit more seriously and he was going to be a really hands-on editor. And he basically made the career of Isaac Asimov um, and uh, Robert Heinlein. Right. And he later made the career of Frank Herbert. Um, Now, John Campbell is also a really controversial guy because he got um, sort of a little bit more conservative when he got into the 60s. And, you know, we we think of science fiction as this sort of bastion of sort of like progressive ideas. But in the 40s and 50s, it was just kind of pro-technology, which was kind of politically neutral, you know. Um, which I th- a lot of people kind of forget. So Robert Heinlein, for example, Rain, you just showed me a, a Starship Troopers, you yeah. know, like mm-hmm. he, he was basically a libertarian, you know, but then he wrote A Stranger in a Strange Land, which was this like book about free love and, you know, I grok you and all this stuff. So science fiction writers were not one thing or another prior it to is, It is kind of crazy, sir, to continue, please, but it is kind of crazy, and I never really thought about, this is the same Heinlein, this is about fascism, by the way. That's and, right. And, and then uh, a Stranger in a Strange Land, is it, it became the counterculture kind of 
tome. It's That's what everyone was reading in the 70s. Uh, I loved that book. To your point, you take something like Stranger in a Strange Land and uh, Starship Troopers, and they're, you're like, they're not written by the same person. These seem incongruous. Um, but <laughs> so to answer your question, what's uniquely American about science fiction is right there, is that you can have an author who was literally the Hemingway of science fiction, right? Like Robert Heinlein, Robert Heinlein was the Hemingway of, of, of American science fiction. He was the biggest science fiction writer of all time uh, at, at that time in the 60s. But uh, I think that that's what's uniquely American is that you had a lot of competing ideologies sort of crashing into each other. You pick up an issue of Astounding from the 60s and you'll have something that seems, you know, sort of ne- kind of uh, conservative and about sort of space exploration in like a gee whiz kind of way. But then you'll kind of have something kind of meditative and, and and odd. And Star Trek's like that too, right? You've got um, writers like Harlan Ellison, um, who was like this really, you know, he was part of what's called the new wave of, of science fiction writers in the 60s and 70s, who was less interested in technology and more interested in the sort of like humanity. Uh, but then you've got Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, writing episodes of the original Star mm. Trek too. Mm. So like that, mm. George Clayton Johnson wrote the first aired episode of Star Trek ever, and he's famous for co-authoring Logan's Run, the novel mm. version of Logan's mm-hmm. Run. And I have so, that. Oh, it's wonder. Have you read it? I haven't read it, but I have it. Oh, it's great. It's lo, the Logan's Run novel. You, well, so you guys like Logan's Run? Logan's Run? I love, yeah, I love yeah, the we movie. About it earlier, oh, yeah. 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 So, but so in the novel, it's 21. It's 30 in the movie, right? That you die. You got, you know, right, no one, right. you know, like, um, oh, but it's a novel, lot more hard. It's a lot more hardcore that you, uh, and for folks who don't know Logan's Run, the idea is that you live in a future society where, uh, Everyone, you party your your ass off and you have an amazing <laughs> yeah, time, yeah. but you have to die at the age of 30. And you're you're hoping to be chosen to be able to live on, but no one has ever chosen to live on. Um, it's a world of plastic surgery and debauchery for the youthful. Yeah, So, but the novel version, co- co-authored, a very slender novel, co-authored by uh, uh, William Nolan and jo- George Clayton Johnson, it's wonderful. You die at 21 in the novel. And you know how in the movie there's like, there is no sanctuary? Mm-hmm. In the novel, there is. Ah. <laughs> and it's in space. It's great. It's a great I, w- I wish that somebody would do the novel. But again, anyway, that d- the different variety of voices in American science fiction from the 40s through the 70s is why science fiction is so reflective of America and reflective of everything that our culture struggles with and still struggles with because science fiction created this unique place where all of those extreme viewpoints somehow could end up in the same publication. Or in the case of The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits, um, or One Step Beyond, or Star Trek, they could also end up on the same TV show. You know, I say this in the book, but, like, if you put all the people that wrote for Star Trek, just the original series, in one room, they would not be able to agree on what science fiction was, what Star Trek was. You know, um, I mean, Sherry Lewis, who invented Lamb Chop, wrote an episode of the original Star Trek. You know, no way. Wait, which one? No which one? way. The Lights of Zatar. Uh, Pull it up on I your. Uh, remind me. Remind me of that one. one. Remind it's me of that third, one. Which... It's a third season episode, and it is about so lower budget. Lower budget. Low budget. So it's it is about literal lights that sort of contain ascensions in them. Um, oh yeah. The the point is is you got Sherry Lewis writing on the same show as Harlan Ellison. You know, I don't know of any other show that's like that. You know. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How well would you take care of your car if you had to keep the same one your entire life? Well, that's how our brains work. So why don't we treat them that way? How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. There's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, these are rough times. It's COVID. It's a lot of political chaos. It's a lot of pressures. Um, you know I'm a big fan of therapy, and uh, I use my weekly therapy session to really dig deep, to help give me tools that I need to not only survive the modern world, but to thrive in it. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. 
it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Metaphysical Milkshake listeners, you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash milkshake. That's betterhelp.com slash milkshake. You know, folks, in all of the craziness going on, in all of the pressure, sometimes our fun time gets pushed to the bottom of the priority list. You know what I mean? And we, we have to wait for that fabled free time to do things that really bring a smile to our face. How often, uh, dear milkshakers, do you really let yourself have some hard-earned fun? Well, whatever your answer is, you know what? Forget it. You deserve way, way more. So add some joy to your daily routine with the delightful game, Best Fiends, the puzzle adventure game you will not be able to put down. Trust me, I have worked my way up slavishly, diligently, with a tremendous amount of fun, up to level 85. I'm in the dusty dungeon, okay? I've been powering up my fiends, upgrading my fiends to take on the evil slugs, and the challenge and the fun just keeps increasing level after level. Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every single time you play. There are dozens of unique fiends to collect, so you can customize your team of fiends to defeat those menacing slugs, power up your favorite fiends to new levels for even more powerful skills, and watch them transform as they get stronger. And with offline play, you'll never be stranded without fun, even if you lose your internet connection. Brand new events and challenges pop up all year round, so you've always got a chance to earn exclusive in-game items, characters, and rewards. You've earned your fun time. Go to the App Store or Google Play to download Best Fiends for free, plus earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. So you bring up a very important point about science fiction, one that we talked about earlier and one that, you know, everyone mentions when you talk about science fiction and why it's so popular and important and culturally relevant, which is that the best science fiction is the kind that uses the trappings of the future to explore uh, the issues of the present, right? Science fiction, when it's at its best, is essentially a mirror right? A future mirror for present society. But it also works the other way too, where, you know, not only does science fiction reflect society, like you say, and all the changes, if you look at like, you know, from the 40s to the 70s and how science fiction, you know, has shifted, but it also, science fiction also has the power to change society, right? It, 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 has, a, it has a deep influence, uh, an, an affect upon our society. It often creates new technologies, right? Uh, We all know about that. But it also changes our morality, the way that that we think about ourselves and our place in the world. Tell us a little bit about the the role that science fiction plays, not just in reflecting society, but in changing society. I guess I should know that, that, how to answer that question. (laughs) I, I think that, like, I think that for me, um, what it does is it allows people to see where they're wrong, I guess, in this like really obvious way. I was thinking about Blade Runner the other day. I'm going to answer this question by talking about Blade Runner, if that's okay. Excellent. You can talk um, about Blade Runner all day if you want to. All right. So Blade Runner just had its uh, a big anniversary. It just had its 40th anniversary. Came out in 1982. Same month as The Wrath of Khan. Uh, it didn't stand a chance at the box office, right? Blade Runner is ostensibly about a, a, a bounty hunter hunting down escape robots who are, who are basically killers, right? Um, and they're no good. But then in the end of the movie, uh, Roy Batty uh, doesn't kill Deckard. He saves him. And then he does that wonderful uh, Rutterhauer soliloquy. Yeah. Right? Monologue, yeah. Like life, tears, tears in the rain. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And then he dies. Which he wrote, of, by the way. I he know. wrote that monologue. Yeah, he ad-libbed. Yeah. Ad-libbed. Um, and then he dies. And then you, the viewer, are left wondering who the bad guy was. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Was it Harrison Ford or was it Roy Batty? 
I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that our perspective uh, is is fucked up. And that that movie tells you at the end that your entire perspective has been fucked up on this and that this guy who's been killing these people might actually also be one of them. Mm -hmm. He might be a replicant. So his reason, his racial reason for killing them is absurd. And that this other guy who was, we thought was a murderer and a terrible person is is capable of this deep empathy. So there's one example. And then you go, okay, then I have to live my life differently because I can't end up on a rooftop like Deckard and have some, and and feel like a piece of shit, you know, because I think that's what that movie does is it makes you wonder about that. So, you know, Star Trek does this in very on the nose ways, right? You know, we know when Star Trek, or, you know, not always, um, but it does it in very, you know, kind of, it's famous for doing it in on the nose ways, I should say. Um, You know, Kirk in the Taste of Armageddon, my favorite episode of the original series ever. I don't, we, we make a choice. We don't have to kill today. You know, the idea that there is a choice. So I think that the way that science fiction changes us is that it creates a hyperbole, big hyperbole, pushes everything out, makes it really big. And then it demonstrates how we can make different choices. And so I think, you know, one of the jokes I've been making about the book is I cannot imagine Barack Obama being president if he wasn't a Star Trek fan because people he talked about how he loved Spock and then people compared him to Spock when he was elected. How do how does Barack Obama not how does he become Barack Obama if he didn't like Star Trek and he didn't have that kind of, you know, I can't prove that, Hmm. but he did talk about Spock enough during his presidency and his love of Star Trek to really make you wonder if Star Trek didn't exist, would Barack have have kind of developed. (laughs) <laughs> that Spockish, that Spockish swagger, but you know, like in the way that Spock makes decisions. Wait, you you're know? saying that that Barack Obama had a had a Spockish swagger? Is People that said that, you know? I didn't, joked you about can, it. Yeah, that he was like journalists said this all the time. Emotionless. Are, yeah, that he very... was that he was stoic and that he made his I, that I I almost feel like. The people, when they play Spock now, I love Ethan Peck's performance and Zachary Quinto's. I always am reminded of Obama, um, <laughs> you know, like, so that's my, that's, that's my hyperbolic uh, example there. What though, I love, I uh, you're right. You're absolutely right, though, that, that one thing about Star Trek in the sense that, like, it's so, especially the, the TOS and TNG were so on the nose with their with their the sort that's of the original series and the new generation for those listening thank yeah. you <clears throat> yeah uh you know it's like but you're black on one side and white on the other and he's black on the left and white on the right you are the same whoa so deep yeah well you know what's funny so though deep. is that to defend star <laughs> trek for its subtlety is i say this in the book but people talk about that episode a lot let there be let that be your last battlefield uh, written by Lee Cronin, which was actually a pen name for Gene Kuhn, who was the Star Trek story editor from the first two seasons. But that episode is is ridiculous and kind of hard to watch now. But then you've got the Man Trap, the first episode ever aired, and Nichelle Nichols is just casually speaking Swahili. Now, American audiences didn't have characters speaking Swahili yeah. with no fanfare before that. So Star Trek was subtle in those other ways. Um, but Walter Koenig said something so smart is he was just like, yeah, but it's not always just about the stories of Star Trek. And I think this extends to science fiction. He's like, it's about like what people see in terms of like, he said, just seeing all the faces of Chekhov and Sulu and Uhura together in unity was more important. And I think that there's something about that too, is that Star Trek gets, it gets a bad rap sometimes for being over the top. At least the original series does. But there was a lot of subtlety. The fact that they, they were just even there. Yeah. And the fact that they were speaking Swahili and, and you know, and uh, that, that is, that's big. And that, that's another way that, you know, I don't think that that would have happened on a sitcom. No, you know and, I mean? and, and look, the, this, is, this brings up the point that I was trying to make is that it's not the influence that sci-fi has on um, society isn't just about you know technology because everyone talks about that a lot you know that like yeah. a lot of our technological advances a, a lot of our best scientists and inventors were all like star trek nerds <laughs> and they, and how the influence that it's had but it's also on morality a lot and we joke about you know the the sort of on the nose morality of it but listen this w- it was 
uh, a bit of a challenge in the time that it uh, that it first aired, you know, and it did make people think differently about some of their uh, assumptions, you know, about other people of other races, other other um, uh, ethnicities, or or you know, a lot of science fiction has made people think differently about the environment and about right. our our you know the the morality of taking care of the planet. Uh, so. It has this kind of very interesting effect on our society. It's not just a mirror, right? It's not right. just a mirror of our society. It does actually push us as a society to change, to be better, to be worthy of the often, but not always, utopian view uh, of society that a lot of uh, the best sci-fi uh, presents us. For me, one of the things that science fiction did for America is brought out the best of America. We talk a lot about the failings of America, you know, and there are many. They are too numerous to mention racism, materialism, you know, oppression, uh, you know, the colonialization, and it goes imperialism, it goes on and on and on. But um, that nothing beats science fiction for that pure burst of adrenalized, imaginative optimism that came from science fiction. And again, like Reza said, not just the technology, oh, there's time travel and there's devices that allow you to do X, Y, and Z, space travel, et cetera, but um, the way it challenges us um, morally to, to examine ourselves. And no, and no one did that better than Star Trek. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think that it is because Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, intelligently hired writers of science fiction prose. Mm. And mm. those people had been, do, had been cramming morality tales into short stories right. for years. You know, and so, and a lot of them, you know, Harlan Ellison is a good example. He only wrote one episode of the original series, um, City on the Edge of Forever, you know, in which Kirk and perhaps, Bog, perhaps Bog, the best episode, maybe the best the best episode yeah. have to make an impossible choice, an ethical dilemma that can only exist in science fiction, um, in which, you know, a innocent social worker uh, named Edith Keeler has to die in order for a war uh, to not um you know, for the Nazis not to invade America. You know, they they did a kind of a version of it in the Strange New Worlds finale that just aired, in which Pike has to see a future in which, you know, he is the wrong guy in, in the wrong place, even though he's trying to make the right decision. But Harlan Ellison has billions of those short stories crammed into magazines and <laughs> short story collections before he starts writing for Star Trek. I talked to Norman Spinrad, who is this wonderful science fiction writer from the 60s who wrote the doomsday machine of the in the original series another it's another name you just made up yeah uh, norman guy, spinrad come he's on. in his he's in Give his 80s he lives in <laughs> he lives in paris i talked to him for an hour on the phone on uh about how he got hired and he got hired because roddenberry had read some of his prose this guy had never written a teleplay before Roddenberry said, hey, I want I like I like your sci-fi. I want you to write a teleplay. He had to call Harlan Ellison and say, how do you write a teleplay? So why does that matter? Well, these it matters because they came from a tradition of literature. And so they had to be able to have characters and morality plays in their stories before they were doing it. Rod Serling was good at this in The Twilight Zone, right? He hired Richard Matheson, who wrote a lot of the great Twilight Zone episodes that people love. Um, but those writers, I think, were so experienced with creating those sorts of morality plays that by the time Gene Roddenberry created this kind of vehicle, and Spinrad basically said that he believed that Roddenberry creating Star Trek was Bob Dylan going electric hmm. for science fiction. He's like, this ah, is what it happened. Great analogy. That's was, great. That was from Norman Spinrad. That is not mine. He gave that to me. He's like, he's like, what happened was is that before everybody who read science fiction, it was just people that read the magazines and the books and they went to the conventions and it was tiny. Then you got Star Trek and suddenly it's in millions and millions and millions of American homes. And suddenly everybody knows what a doppelganger is and a clone and, and, and time travel and war because those writers were capable of that hyperbole, but they had to be able to sell those stories and make them stick. Um, 
that I think that that's why, mm. is that Star Trek had some literary chops. And people forget that. They're like, oh, Gene Roddenberry sat back and Gene Kuhn, who was a great scriptwriter. But they hired a lot of really talented people. Guys, I just got my brand new bag of coffee in the mail from Trade Coffee. This one is called Blue Boon. It's got these incredible hints of milk chocolate and mandarin and honeysuckle. And it's exactly my kind of coffee. Why do I know that? Because before Trade Coffee sent it to me, they actually gave me this incredible coffee quiz. It asked me all these really fascinating questions about like, when do I like to drink coffee? How do I like to drink coffee? What are my favorite notes when I drink coffee? And, you know, I'm filling this thing out thinking, why not? This is kind of fun. I've never really thought about these things. And somehow the geniuses at Trade Coffee managed to send me every month a bag of coffee. Usually I've never even heard of these coffee roasters. They're from like all over the planet. That is exactly what I was going for. And that is the magic of Trade Coffee. Right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order, plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash milkshake. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. Get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash milkshake and let trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash milkshake for $30 off. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You think, however, that science fiction in its attempt to not just kind of reflect, you know, the present reality, but to, as we've been talking about, drive it, to move it towards, uh, you know, a different kind of reality, whether it's by showing us a dystopian world that, you know, could be our future if we don't do X, Y, and Z, or a utopian world that could be our future if we do X, Y, and Z. Like a lot of, a lot of science fiction kind of presents that, that uh, moral choice, whether explicitly or not. But do you feel like sometimes especially nowadays um, when we're confronted with very real, uh, you know, dystopian uh, uh, present, not just future. Um, Do you feel that sometimes it can be a little too real? Like what's the danger of getting a very, a little too deeply mired in uh, present conflicts? Like I'm thinking about just since we're already on the Star Trek thing, you mentioned Strange New Worlds. This is the newest spinoff, right? In this season of Strange New Worlds, uh, where, you know, for you Trek fans, we're like 40 years before the first contact with Vulcans, right? It, it comes on the on the heels of, of World War III. Um, we learn that uh, this sort of great World War III, this American Civil War that, you know, has been a part of Star Trek lore for from the very, very beginning, begins on January 6th. I mean, they certainly make that implication. Yeah, <laughs> right? they, they certainly make that implication. Yeah, and and I wonder. So this this is my question, which is like, is that a little too close for comfort? I think that science fiction in general and Star Trek in specific is generally best when it's taking risks, right? Kirk said it in the original series: "Risk is our business." Right? Um, I think that science fiction that plays it safe is generally forgotten. Or at the very least, is just science fiction that is using sci-fi trappings, you know, to to have fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy would be a great example of that, right? There's nothing wrong with Guardians of the Galaxy, but it's just a science fiction setting, right? It's not particularly 
um, contemplative, you know, um, about, it's not particularly about anything other than like these bad, these are people are bad and these people are good and there's a reluctant hero, you know, and that's fine. And that's also, you know, kind of describes the majority of Star Wars as, as well, which is why people always debate like, well, is Star Wars really science fiction? Would, you know, and I don't oh, know. We'll get to you, that. We'll you, get you to know, that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but um, so I think that like, can it go too far? I don't know. If you go back and watch the next generation, the first episode of the next generation encounter at Farpoint in 1987, it's the same shit. Q is telling Picard about World War III and how bad it is. And there's a soldier who's like addicted to drugs that's being drugged up. And there's a courtroom where they're, you know, that, that, that you know, and that was 87. You know, that was just like the same year RoboCop comes out, right? <laughs> and like, it's almost like Picard and the crew are like in a RoboCop sort of a, a horrible dystopia, which we're told is their past, but our future still. So it might not have been as on the nose as, say, Strange New Worlds, you know, referencing January 6th. But, I mean, you know, Kirk and Bones talked about Nam in, in A Private Little War, you know, outright. You know, like, it, mm. they, they, they talk about Vietnam, you know. So I don't know. Like, I, I think that if you don't take the risk to try to, like, get those specific political or or current events talking points into the story that I, I don't know really know why you're even trying. Mm. You know, if you read like some Philip K. Dick novels, there's like the, uh, a book called uh, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. It's a great book. It's really weird. One of, the stu- be- one of the best titles of all time. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I, I found a first edition at a local library. What library? Just out of curiosity. Uh, it's in South Portland, Maine. Okay. I live in Portland, Maine. I'm, I'm making a phone uh, call right now. Okay, yeah. South uh, Portland, Maine. <laughs> take this shit very seriously. Right. eBay orders of okay yep anyway, keep go going on. yeah eBay yeah yeah uh, <laughs> but um <laughs> that book has some sort of Philip K Dick imagines this sort of future and it's not even the central part of the story but where there's just been a mass elimination of a lot of different races and he talks about it in a way that is a little bit awkward now when you read it because it feels a little bit like I'm not sure if this white bearded white guy should have been writing about this right hmm. Hmm. but at the same time no other science fiction writer was writing about it in that way at that time other than you know um Octavia Butler um but i think that the point is that Philip K Dick took some risks in his novels and those risks um got through to an audience that may not have otherwise been aware of some of these issues so i think that and i don't think that that's necessarily a particularly good Philip K Dick novel but i think it's great that he wrote it and that he took the risk to write it. And so I think that we, I think that science fiction is a genre that you can fail, right? Like you can, you can try it and fail and that's but, okay. But you got to take those big swings. Like yeah. you said, did you read ministry of the future by any chance? Yeah. Love so it. Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson, great science fiction writer. Um, he uh, wrote this book, dear listeners called uh, ministry of the future. That is, was one of the most difficult books I've ever read in my life. It was so hard. I was, uh, spellbound by it, but it was also really hard for me to read because it's about climate change. And it's and it starts off with one of the most heart-stopping chapters you've ever read in your life, where in India, in the near future, um, the temperature reaches a point where human life cannot survive. Um, it, a combination of dew point and humidity and temperature um, where you will literally suffocate in the heat and millions of people die in a heat wave. And all of a sudden the world wakes up to like, Oh shit, what are we going to do now? So 2028, 2028, 2029. Okay. Keep going. So, but it's just, it's terrifying. And it was so, it's such an important book, but it's, uh, it is also too real, really challenging because it hits a little too close to home. What do you think? Well, I think that science fiction is able to get a little bit more specific now than perhaps it could have in the 60s or 70s, right? So the the flip side of that is Dune, in which Frank Herbert had all these ecological messages about climate change and like how a planet uh, environment gets all screwed up 
but he kind of talked himself out of putting a lot of that actually in the novel. Mm. And that earlier versions of the novel had even more of the climatologist in them. And then, of course, mm. Dune comes out and it's hailed as this big book about ecology and that uh, and it gets on all these lists. But if you read the book itself, that stuff isn't really the story, right? The adventure narrative is the story. The coming of age story is, is, is the plot. So he was kind of smart to put that inside of a different kind of narrative, right? But I think contemporary science fiction doesn't have to sort of hide behind, like, Joseph Campbell hero's journey stuff. Mm. I think they're able to do, like, what Kim Stanley Robinson it's does. because we're so close to the apocalypse. There's a great where, book that— Or even, yeah. like, Mad Max feels, like, not yeah. so far yeah. off, necessarily. There's a great book— um, that came out in, I want to say 2014 by a friend of mine named Elena Graydon. There's a science fiction novel called The Word Exchange. This was like when smartphones were just getting popular. But she mm. writes this book about like kind of a near future New York in which smartphones basically become telepathic. And then like these addictive games get introduced on everybody's phones. And then suddenly everybody's getting aphasic and they can't actually communicate. And words are getting, like, removed from online dictionaries because they're no longer relevant to this algorithm that's kind of controlling everybody's telepathic phone device. It's one of the greatest science fiction novels written in the past 20 years. It was very, it was kind of under the radar, uh, the word exchange, maybe because the title was, didn't grab people by Elena Graydon. Um, but that book is really, really, you know, up to the minute in terms of, like, how technology and social media changes our emotional viewpoint and messes with our lives. Gary Steingart did it in Super Sad True Love Story yeah. in 2010. Yeah, um, I read that. Yeah, you know, and I think that that, yeah. like, you know, that, a lot of his, like, fake, he made a lot of fake internet speak in that book, and mm -hmm. now it feels quaint. You know what I mean? But he wrote, that was an up-to-the-minute book of him sort of predicting, okay, here, what are all these trends, you know? Um, and, yeah, now, um, it, now it already feels outdated. 12, it feels from outdated. 12 years ago. I, I think that the, the answer then sort of is that, like, the stuff that feels very up to the minute now, Kim Stanley Robinson, the opening of Strange New Worlds, it actually ages better than you think sometimes. Mm. Um, mm. You know, I think there's kind of a paradox there. It's the same thing with Blade Runner, right? Like, all of that neo future 80s, you know, it's set in 2019. And now you watch it and it weirdly feels timeless. You know, you mentioned Star Wars earlier, and uh, it's interesting because I knew J.J. Abrams through the grapevine. And when he was going to reboot Star Wars, I contacted him and said, hey, me and my friend Reza, you know, we really love religions and spirituality, and we'd love to talk to you about, you know, the mythology of Star Wars. We brought along a Gotham Chopra, Deepak Chopra's uh, son, who's uh, he's been a guest on our show. Um, he, he's got a very successful production company. Um, and we came in and met with the, the, the screenwriter and the producers and talked about the mythology of Star Wars, the spiritual uh, mythology. We were really excited to dig into, you know, the the, the hero myth at the center of it, the Messiah story, you know, the 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 force and uh, and the mystery of that. And the I mean, the, the Jedi journey, are priests. Like, why do we always forget the fact that the, the Jedi are priests, that they live in a yeah. temple, that there's like a, a religion behind this? So, like, right. we were like, we, let's let's because that slow that slowly got sapped out of it. It started mm -hmm. very spiritual. The, the original Star Wars is is a spiritual movie. And then it gradually became about mitochlorians, you know, <laughs> explaining the force, right? So so none of what we said or, and emphasized and underlined to JJ and the gang was utilized in any way, <laughs> shape or form. In fact, he went the opposite direction, got even more kind of science-based than George Lucas. Um, and I get it, that that's fine. But you take out the mystery of Star Wars and it becomes action adventures with, it, it, they might as well be Westerns, um, and it's not really science fiction. Uh, it might as well be a Western and instead of spaceships, it would be, I don't know, carriages, carriages. Or, or ships or, or something like that. Um, but so my question for you is why does Star Wars suck so much worse than Star Trek? <laughs> oh, oh, we're talking about civil war. Here we go. This is easy. I'm, it's very easy. I can answer this for you very easily. I really like a lot of the new Star Wars shows, and I like a lot of the people that work on them, and I was really you happy. You have to say that, and you know it. 
However, <laughs> however, in 2020, the opening of The Mandalorian Season 2 featured um, everybody killing a monster because they couldn't figure out anything else to do other than just to just just kill it. Mm-hmm. Just blow it up from the... They like go inside and blow it up from the inside. The week prior was the season premiere of Star Trek Discovery Season 3, in which a very similar worm-like monster is threatening uh, David Ajala's character book and Sonequa Martin-Green's uh, uh, Michael Burnham. And you know what they do? They make friends with that monster. There you go. And that, those episodes aired, uh, uh, That Hope Is You Part 1, um, of Discovery season three and the first episode of Mandalorian season. So they aired like within a week of each other and they both have giant worm monsters on the, in the sand kind of ripped off from Dune. And in Star Trek, they, they make peace. Literally he empathizes with it. Book empathizes with it. And in the Mandalorian, all those very talented people were like, let's just figure out how to blow this thing up and make it really gross. And just really kill it. Let's just kill it. And I think that's it. To me, that's it. And I lo- and I like Star Wars a lot. And I like writing about it. And I like thinking about it. But that, to me, is it. Is that there's no other way that that you can... That is the difference between the writing. And, and, the, and the other answer to that question is that Star Trek is mostly about adults. And Star Wars is mostly about coming-of-age stories. Yeah. And in Star Trek, generally speaking, the people are already... As a child, I thought Picard and Riker and Kirk... And Cisco were great because they were grownups, hmm. and they were work, They were doing their career. They were just weren't, yeah. you know. And then in Star Wars, it's kind of like, well, you gotta now you'll become who you're supposed to be, and then the story's over. You know, Star Trek's like, okay, these, well these people said. Are the, wow. I have never heard anyone compare and contrast Star Trek and Star Wars that well, and and <laughs> and explain why I and Rain and I think a lot of like true sci-fi fans. Uh, think that there's no argument about which one is better, like Star Wars and Star Trek. Like, there's no comparison between the two. Let's get to your thesis. Your thesis is how the making and remaking and remaking and remaking and remaking and remaking of Star Trek uh, changed the world. So how? How exactly? Like, technologically speaking, morally, sociologically, like, how? Give away the thesis to your book right now (laughs) so people don't have to buy it. It's funny because every review of the book it, it sort of questions whether or not I've earned the subtitle. Like that tends to be the um, the attack. Um, and I think that um, something my editor and I talked about is is that it changed the world because it changed people, and it changed the way people think about morality in in relationship to science and in relationship to these outlandish concepts. And there are specific examples of that. Uh, you know, Greenpeace donations go up during the the um, run of the voyage home in movie theaters in 1986, 1987, that happened, mm-hmm. you know, um, Leonard Nimoy put Greenpeace strategies into a Star Trek movie. There's an on the nose one, um, right there. The first Star Trek movie that was, uh, screened in Russia, um, before Star Wars, um, uh, Nichelle Nichols single-handedly recruited black and, uh, women astronauts to the space shuttle program. Right that would not have been in the space shuttle program otherwise. We interviewed one that, of them. We that, interviewed that, one of them who just flat out that said, happened. yeah, it was, yeah. it was Michelle Nichols. Yeah. But I mean, you know, that happened. She worked with them. She trained to be an astronaut to do the, um, the recruitment. Uh, so that happened, you know, science fiction was brought into the mainstream, which led to star Wars and led to all these, all these films in the eighties. So, I don't think without Star Trek and the fan culture of the 70s that any of that, any of the 80s movies or late 70s movies really could have happened. Um, they, I mean, the only other long-running show other than Star Trek was Doctor Who. And Doctor Who never really broke into America until the early aughts, right? It created, it was the Dylan going electric moment. It put science fiction tropes and ideas into millions and millions of American homes. Star Trek has a lot of literature inside of it. And it, I think that it repopularized some literature. And my example of this that I always give is I used to do a Moby Dick marathon in New York City. A lot of writers would do this in New York City where people read the entirety of Moby Dick over the course of three days. And every single time I did this, I did it three times, whenever the reader who was doing the famous scene where, you know, 
from hell's heart, I stab at thee. For hate's sake, three people in the audience would always go, Con! Because people were introduced to Moby Dick. Right. I was introduced to Moby Dick by through the wrath of Khan. I t- interviewed Patrick Stewart this year um, for Picard season two. And I was like, you know, my first Christmas carol was listening to you, mm-hmm. Sir Patrick, on um, a cassette tape that I had of his one-man show that was released in, ni- in the 90s. And um, he was like, really? And I was like, that's true. I did, uh, I did The Tempest with him on Broadway. How was that? I, I saw him do the, the a Christmas Carol like uh, before he took it to Broadway, like his practice run. But that I mean, like, cool. but wow. I think that like, if you're a kid and you're obsessed with Star Trek in 1992, like I was, suddenly you now like Dickens. Yeah, exactly. You know, I never liked now that you like story. Yeah. And suddenly now you like Shakespeare <laughs> and suddenly now you like, you know, all this, you know, Milton and, you know, all the, and so that is the other thing is that it's this gateway drug into literature, Sherlock Holmes, you know, Nicholas Meyer puts all the Sherlock Holmes stuff um, into the wrath and to the undiscovered country, Hamlet. Um, you know, I don't know if I would have gotten into being a big lover of serious literature if it weren't for Trek. And I don't think I'm alone there. So finally, we want to just kind of sum this up by saying, where do we go? Looking at where we are right now, we referenced January 6th. We referenced climate change, Kim Stanley Robinson, and um, so many deep, difficult issues. Where does science fiction need to take us now? What is, what is the future? What is, what is your clarion call to the science fiction writers and creators out there of what what is needed to move us forward from this genre? It's a good question. Um, I think that imagine, I think science fiction that imagines a future in which the role of technology feels less artificial. You know, I think that that is something that I, I was reading an essay, a friend of mine sent me who works at NASA today about how we always view technology as being in opposition to our humanity Mm. and how a lot of science fiction is written like that, Mm. you know, um, Battlestar Galactica, you know, Mm -hmm. um, various, you know, the Terminator, right? Like, you know, technology destroys us. I'm definitely concerned about my iPhone screen addiction. I'm concerned by how much my daughter looks at screens, but you know, it seems like people have a really healthy relationship with technology and Star Trek and then in Dune and Star Wars, they're, they're, they actually kind of have a healthy relationship there, too. You know, they, they need the hyperdrive, but it's not like they're obsessed with video games or social media or anything like that. So I, w- I feel like there's got to be a way that science fiction can present, present a future in which there's not so much technological strife and that the science fiction could be about something else that isn't just about, tech, you know, because you know, even Star Trek does this, right? Like, they need their, they need their technology like the warp drive and stuff to get going. But then the Borg, that's too much technology. That's all technology, <laughs> you know? And so it's like sort of like, and it's like, yeah, but you guys also like are really reliant on artificial gravity and all this other stuff that's really unnatural. And like you go to the holodeck and Riker's having sex with holograms and, you know, that's not healthy, right? Like, you know, don't those holograms have rights, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, so... And, you know, we, we kind of compartmentalize it because that's what science fiction does. Um, but, you know, I was talking to Anson Mount for Esquire a couple days ago, and he was talking about how, and Rain, as an actor, you probably can relate to this, about how just being at a soundstage just means you're not outside enough. Um, <laughs> and he was just like, I want to be outside more, you know, but I'm on a Star Trek show, so I'm inside too much, you know. And I was thinking about, like, I was like, wow, well, if I get off this call, I'm going to go outside with my daughter because I need to be outside more. So I think that science fiction needs to get outside and needs to be more about technology not being this thing that confines um, humanity, but but perhaps a more kind of a more hopeful, like an Asimov ending, right? Like the end of iRobot uh, uh, in a, a story called The Evitable uh, uh, Conflict. Robots are like have taken over, but it's fine. Because <laughs> they were programmed well and they're good yeah. and they're kind and benevolent. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, and there's not a lot of that, you know? Right. There's not a lot well, of that. So and what I, you're saying is maybe offering some hope. You yeah, know? I think offering some hope, but specifically around that. Around that. About yeah. not just going into like, I love Black Mirror, but not not everything's got to be that. Not everything's right. got to mm. be like, 
that. So I would say more technological hope. I, I just love that. And, and I think, you know, looking at this question that, that Rain asked, which is like, what kind of sci-fi do we need right now? Like looking at this world that we live in now and, and, and the world that's about to come, like what kind of sci-fi do we need? I think one, not just that, that uh, integrates technology, you know, into the human experience in a, in a realistic and non-threatening way, but one in which we are that technology where it's about like the, the human ability is, is unchained right? That that is the kind of, of sci-fi that I would love to see right now. Folks, the, the book again, uh, Phasers on Stun, how the making and remaking of Star Trek changed the world. What's your previous book to this one with the funny name? Uh, Luke Skywalker Can't Read and Other Geeky Truths. So uh, it has been such a pleasure geeking out with you. I really feel I could go on for hours and just continue this conversation. I feel like we need, uh, this should be, its entire podcast should be about <laughs> just kind of uh, philosophically speaking about science fiction. You know, I'm not sure there's a pod like that. So um, not one beautiful that's this conversation. Fun anyway. Yeah, not a fun not, one. Not one that's this fun. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Appreciate yeah, it. It was great. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper, Ryan. Well, what do you think, Rain? Can sci-fi save us? I mean, are we are we doomed? I feel like, you know, the answer is maybe. I think it has to. I mean, who else is going to save us? What else? There's answers there. There are a lot of answers in science fiction. That's right. What else is going to save us? Like, what else do we have here, you know? I mean, at the very least, what sci-fi gives Romantic us- comedies? <laughs> Yes. Westerns. (laughs) Will romantic comedies save us? I just feel like what sci-fi, the best sci-fi will offer us is a vision of a possible future, right? And if it Mm -hmm. hits us at that emotional level, then it can actually affect our decision-making. That's not a joke. I mean, I, I think it's a real thing. I think people can be moved by emotional stories about the future, the near future, the distant future, that then compels them to act differently, to make different choices. I know this because it happened to me. I know it's happened to you. So, yeah, I think sci-fi can save us. Yeah, well, there you have it, folks. Science fiction can save us. What do you think? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, You can reach us on all the social media channels. Uh, at Reza Aslan, at Rain Wilson on Twitter, at MetaMilk Podcast on Instagram, uh, at Metaphysical Milkshake. Let us know your life's big questions. Let us know your thoughts about science fiction, how it has changed and affected your life, and how it might change and affect the life of humanity moving forward. We would love to take your questions and weave them into a future episode. And also, folks, we're going to have a book giveaway. Five of these suckers, phasers on stun. Leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Take a screenshot of it. Send it to us at our at our email address, which is metaphysical at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. First five get sent a copy of this magnificent nerd fest. And you know what? In your review, tell us your favorite sci-fi series or show or book or movie is it dune is it battlestar galactica is it arrival that was one of my recent absolute number like that goes in my pantheon even though it's only a couple of years old uh is it doctor who you know uh, where do you land on this star trek versus star wars uh argument we want to know you can also remember to subscribe to the metaphysical milkshake youtube channel and you can sort of see our beautiful faces every week and until then we will see you next time thanks for tuning in folks live long and prosper metaphysical milkshake is executive produced by rain wilson reza aslan and colin thompson it is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. Original music by Jeff Tang.
Uh, his agent was a guy named Lurton Blessingame, who represented uh, big science fiction writers, which is why you're Frank making Herber, up all these names. Lurton his agent was named Lurton Glurker. Lurton Blessingame. You know what? I had I had to call I had to call a California research library to get letters from Blessingame and, and Frank Herbert. Um, but no, no, that's a real person. Uh, yeah, they all have great names, right? Asimov, you know, like like I was thinking about Bradbury. They've all got great names. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.